You're listening to the Soundhouse Podcast, a podcast where my sister and I attempt to listen to all 3,000 of the highest acclaimed albums of all time, as according to acclaimedmusic.net. Today we're talking about The Velvet Underground and Nico, and unfortunately I uh, couldn't get into contact with Lou Reed's ghost, so what we talk about may have already been discussed at length over the past 50-something years, but um, we learned something, we hope you learned something, and... Uh, Okay, here we go. Today we're talking about The Velvet Underground and Nico, which was released in March 1967 on Verve Records. It was recorded in 1966. I don't know why it was released like a whole year after. Yeah, I think it was because they had such a hard time getting signed because they actually toured with um, Andy Warhol's uh, The Exploding Plastic Inevitable. It was like a... It was like a... Light show. Yeah, it was like a Andy Warhol like... It was like a sideshow, kind of, and it was like multimedia, so it was like film, art, music, and they were a big part of that tour for a while. Um, after this album came out, they didn't want Nico around. Like, they didn't see the, the, the need for another female member, like, especially as a vocalist, and Nico was obviously very, she's a famous German actress and a model, so she was kind of just like eye candy, or so, you know, Lou Reed and John Cale thought at the beginning there's rumors that uh lou reed and nico actually had an affair for a while because they both thought each other you know the most beautiful people in the world so this is another record on the list that was like posthumously acclaimed when it came out it did really poorly um record sale wise and it also had really bad reviews you obviously associate andy warhol with the Velvet Underground to some extent because he, if it weren't for him, they wouldn't have had that jump start. But he didn't really have any authority at all over what the music sounded like. He was kind of like a cheerleader. I think one of the, the members described him as being more of like a cheerleader and encouraged the band and provided all of this stuff. The Velvet Underground was one of the first bands that it, it was more about artistic expression than the actual sound of the music. Like, they, they didn't care too much about putting people off or, you know, shocking people. That's kind of probably what they wanted to do because they talked about and sang so many taboo subjects. And if you look at any of Andy Warhol's films or, you know, his, his philosophies, he was kind of all about that. So. It's very unnerving. And the, I think the Velvet Underground, they were, like, the first alliance between pop music and the avant-garde, which was, like, right up Andy Warhol's exactly yeah and it's funny because lou reed because he wrote all the lyrics to the songs and actually there's some contention about that oh is there <laughs> but um they were, some of them were co-written between john kale and sterling what's his name oh uh, sterling morrison yeah but oh. i mean they were maybe smaller contributions and they said like lou reed is the better songwriter out of us three because i think lou reed you know, he, a lot of his lyrics, when you read them, are very poetic, and I think he was a very good songwriter, and he, he knew it, obviously, and I think he wanted to <coughs> have that credit, and the two kind of just gave it to him, because they were like, okay, whatever, mm-hmm. and they, I mean, it was all fine between them, but I read that, and I was like, wow, because I thought he wrote all of, like, everything. Yeah, so did I, I didn't know that, um, yeah, because I, I thought he... Like, Lou Reed's writing style, he um, had a lot of uh, practice writing pop music because he worked, before uh, he formed the Velvet Underground, 
um, he worked for Pickwick Records, which kind of did, like, you know, they kind of just copied hit songs for a while, and he he worked with a certain writing team. I I was reading somewhere that he would, like, lock himself in a room and, and do, like, a bunch of speed or something, and then just write songs with these people for, like, 15 hours in a room, like, smoking, chain-smoking cigarettes. It's like, wow. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, but that's, I mean, a lot of practice, so he had some time to, you know, to to hone his craft kind of thing Mm -hmm. before the Velvet Underground. What do you think of, like, Paul McCartney from the Beatles and Paul and, and John Lennon? You think, like, oh, all the song credit goes to them, and then you kind of think of George Harrison and you realize, well, he kind of got the short end of the stick. I think it's it can be that way a little bit with the members of the Velvet Underground too, because you just hear like Lou Reed, Lou Reed, and like I didn't know any of the names of the other people in the Velvet Underground. Yeah, me neither. This is actually the first time I ever listened to this record was, uh, because of this list. So mm-hmm. me too. Yeah, even though I I kind of knew that they had a huge impact culturally and on music for forever i was i don't know i I tried to go into the album like not expecting anything but i kind of wanted to be blown away a little bit and i wasn't (laughs) one of the things that did surprise me about this record was the lyrical content because i honestly i didn't really have a clue about you know what the songs are about yeah but i didn't know the velvet underground was actually based on a book and the book was about uh, a correspondence between the author he was a journalist and uh correspondence between this journalist and um, people he would contact from like newspapers and and flyers and stuff about uh, you know basically people who frequented underground sex clubs and and basically who were living the counterculture you know of the day yeah the band's name kind of fits in perfectly with what Lou Reed is singing about on this first album and I think one uh, you compare you know to contemporaries of the day. I mean, he really liked Bob Dylan. Everyone was inspired by, by Bob Dylan to some extent. But I think he said something in an interview. It was like, yeah, I, he, he thought the moral ambiguity was important. He was into, like, street realism and dealt with his lyrics. And he didn't want his lyrics to ask questions like a lot of folk songs of the day were, at, were doing. And so, yeah, it's more like telling a story. I know, sometimes it actually shocks me that this album came out in 1967. I can't... Like, our parents were six years old. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it, was, it was really ahead of its time. And, and again, with Pet Sounds, with uh, the Beatles album we reviewed, it's, you know, they didn't do well critically until later on. Yeah, I, I suppose that's how genius works. I don't know. I think most of the albums on the acclaimed list, like, of course, like musically, they did interesting things, and uh, but I think it, it kind of goes farther than that when you look at its effect on society as well. So, like I said earlier, I tried to go into this album with no expectations, but I wasn't. I was kind of let down, and I, I didn't like it as much as I wanted to, or maybe as much as I thought I would, and. Uh, reading about you know how shocking the lyrics were and even the album cover was it's almost as famous as the record itself for obvious reasons and uh, i don't know i I, it makes me wonder can anything shock us like in 2016 like going back listening to this album you know he's singing about heroin he's singing about 
prostitution and all, all these things that were and I, I guess typically are considered taboo but then I don't know I look around like you can you can walk into a hot topic and buy bondage pants if you want in 20 in 2016 and that's you know that's stuff filtering down through filtering down through the culture okay so Andy Warhol did the album artwork for this record um one thing I found out about the uh, album I think it's on like the inside sleeve or is it on the back I don't remember but the band kept in reviews from like newspapers and stuff about the Velvet Underground like really bad reviews in the album itself yeah I think that's proof of how much they didn't give a shit <laughs> yeah or wanted to appear that they didn't give a shit yeah exactly they were very um I, I didn't look extensively but I found very few pictures where none of them were wearing sunglasses I swear even live pictures they love wearing sunglasses even at night it's effortlessly cool <laughs> <laughs> anyway yeah they I mean they had to keep up appearances obviously yeah they and cool. they're probably high a lot of the time so I mean Possibly. <laughs> so this album is rated uh, the 13th greatest album of all time by Rolling Stone uh, magazine, and uh, it's also one of the first albums to kind of be considered like lo-fi, gutter sort of rock music without you know without being um, like a garage band or garage rock. Because that was pretty popular in California, I suppose, in the 60s. So a big complaint about this record, um, I suppose, when it first came out, was that it wasn't really cohesive sounding, like song to song. Um, but I think I think each of the songs sound um, fully formed. Like, Even though the songs may not flow well together on the album as a whole, I think just th- thematically... It goes, you know, it just works really well. There's actually, like, a popular fan theory that um, uh, the the album is about um, a man meeting a drug dealer and beginning a relationship with them. And that's kind of a different way to look at it. I don't know. It's like, it, it, I suppose it's accepted in the, in the indie music community or whatever, but um, that's one way to look at the songs, which is interesting because when I first listened to it, I didn't like it at all. I... I hated this album. I was like, because looking back at my notes from my first listen, uh, let's just say, uh, I didn't. Another Nico song. Why? <laughs> Capitals. <laughs> I didn't absolutely hate the album, but I, I was underwhelmed, I think. I can appreciate what it did for music afterwards. Like, there's that um, Brian Eno quote saying, you know, only 30,000 copies of the album sold, but every person who owned you know, one of those copies started a band. Like, that's probably true. Because it was just so unlike anything. Like, there's... There's sometimes you can hear uh, the influences of a band, like, in their music, and their output, and that's fine. I mean, it's it's hard to, to create something completely new. But I feel like with a couple of songs in particular on this album, it sounds like nothing I've ever heard before, and those are the songs that I was the most impressed with. So... Uh, saying that, we're going to go delve into the album track by track. The first song is Sunday Morning. Sunday. It's funny, I'm glad um, that Lou Reed sang this song and not Nico, because the song is like very light and it's like gentle sounding and it's a nice way to like ease into the record. 
and Nico's voice is so low and dis- it's like harsh sounding to me. If she wouldn't like she, I like her backup vocals on the song, but Lou Reed is like more feminine sounding than Nico on this song. I uh, apparently it it sounds a bit put on by Lou, but I think it was intentional, obviously, because it's such a soft song. But this song uh, it reminds me of um, "Cloudy" by Simon and Garfunkel. Oh, a little bit, yeah. It's uh, very like. I mean, it, I don't think the lyrics are as light as it sounds, which is similar to the Simon. Oh yeah, it's Sunday morning. It's it's probably about like the day after. Uh, you know, being hungover and, you know, your heroin wearing off, you feel like shit. <laughs> but it sounds beautiful. So, I mean, and it's 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 a nice contrast to um, the rest of the, the subject matter. Like, if, if you're not, you know, thinking about, you know, the thematic kind of story that runs through the album, it, it could be, you know, just a one-off. It, it, like, I don't know if it was a single or not, but it sounds like it could have been a single. Yeah, definitely. Like, it opens the album with, like, if you if you just bought this album and, you know, put it on, and you're like, oh, this sounds a bit poppy, and then you hear the other songs after, you're probably like, whoa. <laughs> it's yeah. very different. But uh, John Kale played the, what is it called? Celesta. In this song. You know, the... It's like a piano, but... It's right, and it's, it sounds like a a children's instrument or something. Yeah, it's I, I don't really know. I, I like this one. As do I. Track number two is I'm Waiting For My Man. Apparently the demo for this song, the demo version was way more Bob Dylan sounding like in the guitar and stuff. Like it, apparently it sounded like Bob Dylan does Lead Belly. <laughs> <laughs> um, to me, I don't know, when I first listened to it, this is... It's kind of a bit of an earworm of a song, but I still, it's not one of my favorites because this kind of seems flat to me. And it was just, it was a bit boring. And that, I mean, that's just my personal opinion. But I don't know, considering what it was about, you know, a man waiting on the street corner to meet up with his drug dealer, you know, he's he's trying to buy heroin. I mean, it's, it's not very exciting to me. I don't know if it's, but this is one of the songs where, um, it's it's another like ambiguous tone, you know, just telling a story. In the uh, the percussion of the song, um, apparently it's it's kind of like a train. It's... Yeah, that's yeah. You can definitely hear that. Maureen Tucker is I. I, I like her. Yeah, I love her. She's the the more I read about her, the more I, like she. I don't know. She just kind of seemed like she was like the backbone of the group. I mean, most drummers I feel like are, but her and. Uh, Sterling where you know they were the rhythm section but she um, she wasn't like a, a trained musician or anything like that she was she had experience but it wasn't a lot of experience yeah so um, I, I suppose she used I don't know she used you know her own personality and she used other things uh, to replace that training and I think that's kind of one of the reasons why Velvet Underground was so unique was because you know she came at drumming with a just a different style and it was just her and with the progression of the song you know it's like you know the rush of the city the subway and i don't know i i didn't think the song was that boring because i don't know i like that part of it the, the drums yeah i know maureen tucker really liked um like african rhythm so you can i feel like you can kind of feel that the next track is femme fatale nico is uh Nico does the vocals on this track. Which Katie hates. 
even her vo- her voice just sounds pretentious to me. Like she was, she was pretentious. She was very. She was a very problematic human being, as far as everything uh, that I've read about her life. And oh boy, but maybe we'll talk about that later. I don't know. Anyway, femme fatale. It's like I, I understand she was German. She had an accent. She had a very deep voice. She she had a certain style. I, I don't think she had a bad voice. I listened to some of her solo work before she joined the Velvet Underground, and I didn't mind some of the songs. But uh, just the way she was using her voice on these tracks, I I cannot stand her voice. It like I, I listened to the album multiple times, and some of the songs I I liked more and more the more I heard them, and her songs I just can't find anything positive about her vocals. It's like it sounds like Marlene Dietrich, like slowed down. Like I, I just not, I can't like it at all. And uh, and I, I don't know the song again. Right after waiting for my, for the waiting is it for my man. is it I'm waiting for the man or I'm waiting for my man. I'm waiting for the man. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> okay. Anyway, this is another song that sounds kind of boring to me and. Uh, Reed, Lou Reed actually wrote it um, at the request of Andy Warhol about um, Edie Sedgwick, who was another part of Andy Warhol's social life, marvel. She died when she was of an overdose when she was 28. You're going to cough? Okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very flat song on this album for me, and I don't think it, it doesn't really have anything special in it for me. It's not exciting. The thing she does to oh, please. The next track is my favorite track on this album. Venus She's doing and Furs. a weird arm pose. Right <laughs> I love the way this song sounds. I think even on first, the first listen, I loved it, and I'd never heard it before. Shiny, shiny, shiny boots of leather. Um, it was inspired by a book of the same name. Um, it was a book of fiction, I think, written. I don't maybe in the early. 1900s? I'm not sure when it came out, but anyway, one of the first um, books about a uh, sadomasochistic relationship, and, you know, went into details about this relationship. So uh, Lou Reed took inspiration from that, and it also, you know, ties into the name of the band and... And the culture of the time. Yeah, everything, you know, is wrapping up nicely into seedy <laughs> underbelly of New York. Um one of the downsides to the song though like when i was when i was uh reading up for the podcast um this song was featured in an ad for dunlop tires in 1983 and it's like such a bizarre commercial it's like i don't know it's over a minute long anyway and i'm like was like did this did they air this during the super bowl in 1983 or something i couldn't believe it was real I, yeah it's, <laughs> it's it's hilarious if you ever get a chance you need to look up Dunlop Tire ad, nineteen ninety three, Venus and Furs. It's you'll never get those images out of your mind when you hear the song, um, and it's funny to me because it's another example of a, a, a counterculture or a subculture that isn't popular and is you know looked down on, being like co opted by mainstream culture and and commercialism, trying to sell brand. <laughs> Venus and Furs for. A, a tire commercial? I don't know. It doesn't make any sense to me. But I digress. Um, I love uh, 
Kale's viola in this. I think it, it like makes the song for me. It feels the dissonance and the it's the it the viola shocked me more than you know what he was singing about. And uh, I think Kale used a, a weird tuning method that Lou Reed devised. And I think it's where you tune all the strings to the same note or something. It's kind of like Baroque poppy. Because yeah. Lou Reed, I don't think he ever shied away from like, yeah, I write pop music. Like he, they obviously wanted their music to be popular with other people. But uh, yeah, I think with that viola, and it's interesting. I don't know, I don't think they cared about being popular. I think they wanted to, we wanted to write what they wanted to write about, and they did, and didn't do well, but, you know, didn't really matter. Probably because they were on heroin at the time. <laughs> it all comes back to heroin. <laughs> the next track on the album is Run, Run, Run. So the song was actually written on the back of an envelope by Lou Reed. After uh, he and the band were on their way to a gig. Cafe Bazaar. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of the more obvious lo-fi sounding songs on the record to me. I, I This is also another favorite. For moi. Yeah, I like the way it sounds. Um, the lyrics, you know, it details the lives of characters Lou Reed created um, that live in New York City. And obviously it has... <laughs> The theme of heroin once again and drug overdose and all of those things the seedy underbelly imagery and uh there is a guitar solo that lou reed does and it's double tracked and it's really interesting because when i was watching and reading stuff about it someone described it as sounding like a bagpipe <laughs> which it does kind of it's uh it's pretty cool a little bit uh the song also you know, showcases Lou Reed's uh, storytelling abilities because it's about four different characters kind of all meeting the same end. The next track is All Tomorrow's Parties, and Nico uh, again does lead vocals on this track. To Katie's dismay, I read a review of this album, and when it gets to uh, this song, uh, whoever the, the author uh, says, by now you're uh, you're used to Nico's you know, unconventional twang and, and you're warming to it. And I'm like, no, <laughs> no, I can't stand Nico's voice. I read that she was uh, partially deaf, like in one ear. Yeah, and I'm like, that makes a lot of sense because she sounds tone deaf to me. I don't, I don't know. I guess all you have to be is beautiful and pretentious to be considered interesting and friend a rock band. I don't know. Speaking of pretentiousness, a little uh, side note. Apparently she had weird pre-performance rituals, and one of them was lighting a candle and burning it, like, to the end before going on stage. And sometimes to the annoyance of the other band members, they would be like, okay. That must have taken a while. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. I would have just, like, cut her candles in half. <laughs> I guess it depends on what candles, the type of candles they were. Anywho. Uh, another, um... There's another critic I read, and they talked about Nico's voice, and they described it as being half goddess, half icicle, and uh, that she sings in perfect mellow ovals and sounds like a cello getting up in the morning. And again, it's like the most pretentious thing I've ever heard in my life. Like, just trying to make an excuse for, I don't know, 
it's her, her voice is very off-putting just the tone and everything about it i can't handle it this song though i like the piano in it by john Cale. it's it's really elegant sounding and uh, I, the lyrics again are are poetic thanks to lou reed and i don't know if this was co-written it was based on a nursery rhyme. I can't remember the name of it. Yeah, but I, it obviously has a little bit of a different um, take on it. Be- I think it's because Nico's singing. Just the way she's delivering it, it's very flat. And, I mean, she was a very seemingly elegant person. I mean, she was a model, and she was she spoke several languages, and she was a very intelligent woman, but at the same time, you know, you know she had many issues. She's very <laughs> and uh yeah so it kind of gives a different take it's a little bit more mature and it, it fits in sorry it fits in with the uh the themes of the album yeah i don't this is like one of my least favorites on the album i i don't hate nico's voice as much as katie does but i i don't like it very much either and this song is one of those that i would just skip <laughs> This is a song where uh, Maureen Tucker, the drummer, the everyone was just going crazy with this song, and the guitars were just getting so loud that uh, Maureen just she just stopped playing completely, and she thought the band would stop as well. No one noticed. But Maureen Tucker was like, "Yeah, I'm so glad that's on the album. Just you know, that is the album." Yeah. The next track is "There She Goes." There she goes. There she goes again. I'm just kidding, that's not that's not the right that's song. That's not the song. But that's what it's called. Um I like recently just found out this song, the beginning, it borrows or nods, gives a nod to Marvin Gaye's song called Hitchhike. Yeah, it's the same little guitar like at the beginning. But Lou Reed loved doo-wop and I think probably a lot of black artists in general. I mean, even though it's about a prostitute and her job, uh I don't think it has the same shock value now. The next track is I'll Be Your Mirror. Another favorite on this album of mine. Yes, uh, one of mine too. Apparently Lou Reed wrote this for Nico after Nico went after him after a show. I don't know, there's some story that Nico said I'll Be Your Mirror to Lou Reed. I wonder what the context was. After Maybe like, oh, is my hair okay type thing? I'll be your mirror and then she'll... Yeah, it's kind of, it's another gentler sounding song, and like sweeter than any of the other songs on this record, except for um, Sunday Morning, I guess. Sunday Morning is a bit lyrical. Yeah, lyrically, but just the, the way it sounds, it's a little lighter sounding, and uh, it actually took quite a few uh, takes, like for um, Nico to get the vocals right. And they like chastised her so much because she wasn't, you know, giving the deliver- the delivery that they wanted. So she kind of like broke down in tears. She was frustrated, and and then she did one more take, and that was the take that they used for the record. And that's yeah, it, I I do love her vocals on on this song. It I, it does fit really well, and um, the the harmonies and like on the chorus or the outro or whatever. It's so they're so uplifting. uplifting. They're just yeah, they're beautiful. The next track is the Black Angel's Death Song. Another um, type of spoken word delivery by Lou Reed, kind of Bob Dylan style. Mm. And John Cale on the viola with his dissonance and... Droney. Kind of... The uh, 
bursts of audio feedback are actually John Tail blowing into the microphone. <laughs> I was wondering what that was. Mm. Hmm. Hmm. Lyrically, I have no idea what the song's about. I know there's some references to um, to heroin and communism. And I mean, it's it's called the Black Angel's Death Song, so it's kind of ties in with um, the idea of death that are on a couple tracks that you know is inevitably linked with drugs and overdosing. But I, other than that, I have no idea. The song doesn't really make any sense to me. I don't. Um, I don't know if it was one of you know the early type of like dadaist uh, you know lyrical endeavors you know just choosing words for the way that they sound together or you know in a certain melody i guess i'd have to look more into it but i'm not too sure it's not a positive sounding song and it the viola really drives that home that it's a darker song the next track is called european sun this song was um i don't know if it's written in the memory of or dedicated to um, Lou Reed's, uh, one of the, Lou Reed's professors at Syracuse University. The song is over seven minutes long, and there's a lot of, like, improvisation, um, John Cale smashes a stack of dishes with a metal chair. That's what the sound is. I knew something was breaking. Yeah. Again, it's more experimentation in the studio, I think, um, very different from, uh, Brian Wilson's, <laughs> uh, experimentation. <laughs> Yeah, it, it very. Brian Wilson was very childlike, and Velvet Underground was very um, dark. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think this is this is the longest song on the record, but it has the least um, amount of lyrics and singing in it. Most of it is just an instrumental breakdown, like mental breakdown almost, just you know, you know descending into madness. It's like the Nirvana, <laughs> crazy Nirvana song. Yeah, it's. I think those are both. Both the songs are excellent um, closers for both of their respective albums because it it kind of is a reflection of what each band was trying to do with that that album. I mean, they and you know, kind of what they stood for. They revolution exactly musically. Punk. They yeah, punk wouldn't exist. Half of the bands that I love wouldn't exist without the Velvet Underground, and that I can appreciate even if I don't like the album. So now we can get into um, what influenced the Velvet Underground. Okay, so we spoke briefly about how doo-wop really um, influenced Lou Reed. He loved a lot of the 50s groups, some of them uh, called the Jesters, the Paragons, the L Chords, the Excellence. Um, and Lou Reed said that these groups taught him the virtues of musical repetition. And that kind of ties in with John Cale's uh, love of drone. Minimalist. <laughs> and, yeah, in his uh, um, classical avant-garde style. I mean, Lou Reed liked rock and roll, I suppose, and doo-wop, Marvin Gaye. And um, John Cale uh, was like an avant-garde composer, and he um, was a big fan of John Cage and Eric Satie. And there's um, a, a movement, or anyway, a piano piece that Eric Satie wrote, and it's it's just like a, like, it's, it's not a long song or theme or whatever, but you have to play it so many times. I, what's the, it's like 840 times 
It takes like 15 hours to complete it. Yeah, and and no one had done it until uh, John Cage was like an experimental um, composer. And uh, it was like a relay, a piano playing, not a contest, but it was, they broke a record or something anyway, because... Um, it was on a game show. It was from like 1963. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. A game show called I've Got a Secret. Yeah. Um, but John Cale was one of the uh, participants, and he played uh, part of uh, the song called Vexations by Eric Satie. So that's kind of gives you an idea about what influenced the Velvet Underground. Lou Reed was also uh, really fond of the band called The Seeds. He looked at a lot of obscure music. Mm-hmm. I, I found that funny because he... He kind of labeled himself as an outcast, and then he went on to create music about outcasts for other outcasts <laughs> to listen to. I don't know. It's It all works out. Yeah, but the seeds, they were, like, minimalist. They were famous for doing, like, two-chord riffs. So, again, it ties into... Uh... That's very punk of them. As for who the Velvet Underground and Nico influenced, um, there's so many uh, records on the highest acclaim list that you know, cite the Velvet Underground in particular as a huge inspiration to them. There's been a lot of famous covers. I know David Bowie did one. R.E.M. has done a few. They had such a huge impact um, culturally and they changed the musical landscape forever. And that's probably why it's number four on this list. So that wraps up our discussion about the Velvet Underground and Nico. Um, These are just our opinions and we're just learning. We're trying to figure out uh, the format, so, you know, just uh, bear with us while we iron things out. It took us like two months to do this. Shh, it's fine. Uh, We do hope that it becomes more collaborative in the future, so if you have something to say about the album or something to say about what we said about the album, or if you want to send us music, or if you want to just say hi, drop us a line at soundhousepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.